So if you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, if you have the, the Pewback Bible, um, turn to page 809 or 809. We're going to spend the next several weeks talking, um, walking through the Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Mount? I don't know. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, Sermon on the Mount, not in the Mount, sorry. Sermon on the Mount. I already preached a sermon already, so I'm like, I'm ready to go. Um, um, we're going to be spending a couple of weeks um, in this passage, this is, this is Jesus' longest sermon um, recorded in Scripture. And um, by first observation, as you walk through it, you're thinking like, oh man, he's, he's just hitting all these random topics. But, but I think the, the author of, uh, of uh, Matthew, um, he's, he's trying to help us see something, something different than just a sermon that Jesus is speaking, right? Like we often think, oh, Jesus is talking, we ought to listen. Yes, that's true, but there's a reason, there's a purpose of Jesus' message, and, and we find that here in this passage. So for the next several weeks, we'll be um, in many of the teachings of Jesus um, from, from this sermon. And I just want to give you just a couple of ideas um, before we, we dive into the passage so, so we kind of understand what's going on here, right? So, so Matthew, right, he, this, is, this is one of Jesus' disciples. This is Levi, the tax collector. Um, his audience is Jewish Christians, right? So his desire is to minister to Jewish Christians, right? And so what he's going to do, he's gonna pull in all of these Old Testament ideas and themes in his writing. And, and one of those themes that we often see in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to see it often here um, in the Sermon on the Mount as we read through it, is this idea of the, of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. This is not a new concept, but fairly new for the disciples. Because if, if you remember, Jesus had just been tempted from, from, from Satan. He's recruited a bunch of people to follow him, 12 disciples, that he's going to preach and teach. Um, Jesus does miracles, signs, and wonders. He's proclaiming the gospel, and the crowds are enthusiastic about his message. They're excited about what Jesus is going to teach, but particularly because he's showing signs and wonders, right? I mean, if someone walked in here and started healing people, I mean, and, you know, people who were lame and they start walking, people who were deaf would hear, we all would be like, oh, we got to... There's something special about that guy, right? So that's what's happening here in the Gospels. And, and what we see here is, is a beautiful message that Matthew is going to paint for us through Jesus' words. So the theme is the kingdom of heaven, but it starts off with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you read Matthew chapter 3, says, Repent, and the, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so the message of the Sermon on the Mount, right, the message is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus starts off with the sermon, with the Beatitudes. So we read it in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, I want to pause for a minute. I wondered why Matthew put that in the passage. Why, why was it important for Matthew to include this idea that Jesus went up on the mountain and his disciples gathered and the crowds came to follow and he sits down 
on this mountain, maybe, I don't know, on the peak, maybe on a, on a rock, but, but, but why does Matthew say that he sat down? Why, why is it important for Matthew to point out to his audience, right, who are these Jewish Christians, secondarily to us? Why, why does he want us to see that Jesus is ascending to a mountain to sit down to teach? Then I think of Exodus chapter 19 and 20. It's famous. You, you know the story. It's it's when the people of God come around Mount Sinai. Jesus tells Moses, gather the people. I want to come talk to them. So he gathers his people to the Mount Sinai, right? And Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, God descends in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. He's going to give the, the law to Moses and And what's going to happen is the people are going to be afraid because they're going to see the power and majesty and splendor of God. So you know what they do, right? They tell Moses, "Uh, wait a second. We like Yahweh. He's cool. But here's the deal. We, We actually, we don't want to talk to him. We, we don't, like, we are seeing the splendor and majesty. He's coming down in thick smoke, darkness, lightning, thunder, and we don't want to talk to him because we are afraid we're going to die. So do us a favor, Moses. Why don't you go up and you talk to him? And we promise, we promise that whatever he says and you tell us, we're going to do. That was the last time God spoke to his people. Do you want to know the next time God speaks to his people? Matthew 5. God, Jesus Christ, in human flesh, doesn't doesn't come down in thick smoke, but comes in human flesh. It's not Mount Sinai. We don't know the mountain that he's on, but, but... he ascends to a mountain, he sits down. And, and why do you think he sits down? Well, in those days when a teacher was teaching, they, they sat down, but, but, but here, here's what I want you to see him. More than just a teacher. If the message of Matthew is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at a hand, what is, what is, who is the leader of this kingdom? In, in, in those days, and even in these days, like there's a monarchy. There, there's a king. A king who rules and reigns, who's sovereign over his people, over his land. And what I think Matthew is doing here is, I think he's drawing us to this picture that if he's going to talk about a kingdom, he has to talk about a king. And I think what we see here is that Jesus, who's sitting on this rock, not explicitly showing us this, but, but showing us more, more implicitly that, that Jesus is king. And as he's sitting down, he's going to declare, he's going to teach his citizens, his, his members of his kingdom, of what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom. So when he's sitting on a rock, I want you to picture the the splendor and majesty of a king who sits on a throne and he's going to, to decree, he's going to tell you, this is who you are. This is who I want you to be. And the disciples that are sitting there or standing. The interesting idea with the disciples is they're sitting there or standing. Matthew doesn't tell us. 
that they're expecting Jesus to be, to be this conquering warrior who's going to destroy the, the, the oppression of the Roman Empire. So when they're sitting there, they're like, all right, this is it. He's going to tell us how we're going to win. He's going to tell us how to fight. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, this is, this is completely upside down. What Jesus is going to say is, hey, listen, there's nothing to fight. There's nothing to win. I'm, I'm going to defeat it on my own. The power and oppression that you're sensing, I'm, I'm going to defeat, but it's, but it's not the power and the oppression that, that you're thinking of. It's, it's the power and oppression of sin. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to show them, right, like the, the true citizens of heaven. He's going to show them this is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And the importance for us this morning is two reasons. The importance for us to see this is that we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we who are believers of Jesus Christ, who have put our faith in Jesus, we are part of a citizenship. We are a part of a membership. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why that's important, because many of us live, or all of us live in a broken and fractured world. And in this broken and fractured world, we are tempted to think that the ultimate and best thing, our best good life is here now. And it's not. What Jesus is gonna point to is there's something better. There is a kingdom that you and I are part of as we traverse through this broken and fractured world. And that your hope and your desires and your affections and, and, and everything that you long for should, should be ultimately seen in Jesus as the king and experienced in the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth. Because the kingdom of earth has no good pleasure for you. There's nothing good in the kingdom of earth. There's only sin, brokenness, darkness. And it's going to look good at times. It's going to feel good at times, but it's not. So Jesus says, this is what the people of God look like, particularly now in a broken and fractured world. And this is what the people of God are going to look like when the king returns to ultimately reveal the kingdom of heaven when he comes back. Second thing is we need to be reminded, right, that this is true for us today. And that as we await, await Jesus' return to establish his kingdom of heaven, we get to be part of the kingdom of heaven now. So he's going to tell us what does it look like to be a citizen of this kingdom. So we read in verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love what a commentator says about the Beatitudes in this passage. He says that Jesus is inviting us through faith to reorient our values, vision, and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. This is an invitation for us this morning to to be the citizens of heaven, to, to change our hearts and minds to see what truly is good, what truly is right, to to accept the truth of God's word, its values, its principles for what they really are in light of the world that we live in. This isn't law but gospel. Jesus is inviting us into life in God's kingdom both now and the future age. This is grace. By faith and through grace, Jesus is inviting us into a practical life of discipleship. We participate in and imperfectly imitate his father-trusting, kingdom-awaiting way of being in the world. The Beatitudes, though we read it, we can be tempted to look at the Beatitudes and say, this is hard, right? Like when you read it, you're like, a couple of things. One, I ain't blessed. Two, definitely I'm not poor in spirit. Uh, I may be mourning but, but I'm definitely not persecuted, right? Like, and I'm surely not pure in heart, right? How many of you read that? You're like, that ain't me, Tim. Um, that ain't me. Like, that, I read that and I'm like, this is not who I am. I, I can't do these things. I, I can't accomplish these things. And I don't think Jesus is, is telling us, this is all the things that you have to do to be a good Christian. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is this is the true mark of a Christian. The the true mark of a citizen of heaven is someone who looks like this, and he's not asking for perfection. He's asking for faithfulness, right? So when you read this, you're, you're not... You shouldn't be tempted to think, man, I, how do I do this every single day and to earn God's forgiveness or, or to, be, to be a model Christian? No, 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 that's not what we're saying. What, what we're saying here this morning is that, that Jesus is the one who models all these things. Jesus is the one who accomplished all these things. And Jesus is the one who accomplishes it through his spirit in you. Right, we're tempted to look at this, and this is like you know uh, uh, works-based salvation, right? That I have to do all these things to earn God's salvation. No, God, God's already given us that salvation. God has already illuminated our minds and our hearts to understand who God is, so that we can rightfully respond to who God is. So we don't have to do these things to earn that forgiveness or that grace. It's already given to us. But what Jesus is calling us is if you're going to be a citizen of this kingdom, this is what I'm going to accomplish in you. This is what we ought to be. This is not a list of doing. And as we read throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a list of all the things we have to do. 
This is who we are. This is what makes us different from the rest of the world. When you read this passage, right, you have to look through the lens of of the world that we live in. The world says the opposite of this. When it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does our world say? Our world says, right, that the best people here, the, the, most, the most important people in our world are the people who are rich, people who have wealth, people who have power, people who have fame, people who have influence. What Jesus is saying, no. The people who are truly blessed, the people who are truly mine, are completely opposite from what we see in the world are completely different from what we see in our culture. And he starts off with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nine times he says, blessed. In the first one he says, those who are poor in spirit. Um, I want to um, provide a resource for you that I think you should you should read and study. Um, as I've been preparing for the Sermon on the Mount, an um, uh, influential person in this sermon, um, I'm gonna get many of her points, is Jen Wilkins. Um, she's a Bible teacher. Um, she has written a Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and I took some of her ideas, particularly these two ideas. She says this, it's very beautiful. She says that in the first couple of verses, right, what Jesus is trying to do, what he's trying to show us is he's trying to show us, right, where character takes root where character takes root and then he's going to show us in the second part of the beatitudes is how does character bear fruit so 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 what we're going to see in the beatitudes is where does character take root where is it placed in and then we're going to see in verses 7 to 10 is is how does this character flourish How do the citizens of of this kingdom, the citizens of heaven, how do they flourish in a broken and unstable, sinful world? And and we'll see that in a little bit. And the first one is, blessed are the poor. This is completely different from what the world says, right? The ones ones who are poor in spirit is this. This These are the people who realize, who understand Right, that they do not have the resources. Think about the idea of poor. What does it mean to be poor or impoverished? These are the people who do not have the resources to save themselves. These are the people who realize that they can't rescue themselves from the muck and the mire. They cannot rescue themselves from the sinful patterns of this world and 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 those who recognize that they can't save themselves for there is the kingdom of heaven what does that mean it's it's being part of God's family it's being under the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ it's it's it means being part of who he is and what he's going to do it's to be securely in his hand knowing that he will never let you go and that you can never lose your salvation Those who are poor in spirit recognize their need for Jesus, that he has to save them, that they can't save themselves, that, that like, no matter how much you pray, no matter how many good deeds you can accomplish in your life, you cannot save yourself. You cannot earn your way into heaven. The poor in spirit are the ones that said, I don't have the resources to do it. I can never accomplish that in my own life. So I look to Jesus to do it. Look at the king. Those who are spiritually poor, destitute. 
are those who also mourn. What does it mean to mourn? What, what is Jesus saying here? Those who have godly sorrow. What are they mourning over? Well, if you're spiritually poor and you realize you need saving, you mourn over two things. You mourn over your sin. You mourn of the realization of what sin has caused you. What has sin caused us? It, it costs us separation and alienation from God. So we mourn over that. And the promise is that those people who, who recognize who God is and, and who, who grieve over their sin, they will be comforted. What are you comforted in? You're comforted in the person, not in the feeling. Not in the emotion, but you're comforted in the knowledge of knowing that God has saved you. God has rescued you. You cannot do it on your own, but he did it for you. He's, do it in, he's doing it in you. But you mourn over your sin. You grieve the fact that you've sinned against God. You grieve for the sin of this world that has fractured us from each other, that has fractured us from God. Those who mourn look at this world and say, there's something wrong, something bad is happening, and the only way that this world can change if they repent because the kingdom is at hand. You look at this broken world and you say, there is something bad happening among our people. There's something bad happening among our children. Why do less people come to Jesus? Why are the pews more empty than usual? Why does it seem that people are, are, are less likely to hear the gospel, understand and respond to the gospel? Why is it harder for our children to believe in Jesus? Why? Because of sin. Sin has run rampant in our world, in our culture. And it's a, it's a travesty that our churches now who don't talk about sin, who have no desire to call people to repentance, because they'd rather see the, the pews filled with people feeling good about themselves because many churches these days want you to be happy, but they don't want you to be sanctified. They're more concerned about the offering plates and they're more concerned about you feeling good about yourself, about you being a good person, and less about you being in awe of the kingdom of, of heaven, being in awe and in splendor of God's majesty and power. God's justice and holiness, God's grace and mercy. Those who mourn see a broken world and say, God, we need you. We need you now. I need you in my child's life because I see the pattern that they're walking on and it ends in destruction. God, we mourn over our sin and our world. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This idea with meek is, it's, it's, it's associated with gentleness and humility. So you can say, blessed are the gentle, or blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Those who are humble. Now how do we, how do we get there? Well, we get there, right? We, we're aware that that we need saving, we, we're aware that sin is prevalent in us and in our world, and, and we're humbled. 
We're humbled by this idea, right, that, that the one who is blessed is the one that recognizes, right, that who God is in light of who we are, that God is gracious and loving and kind, that God is invested and interested in you and me, in our everyday life, that God truly cares for us. We're humbled by the idea that, that, that God has a plan for us, and it's a good plan. It's a righteous and holy plan, a hard plan, because it's not easy being part of this kingdom. It is not easy being a citizen of heaven. Let me tell you something. It's much easier. It's much easier to be a citizen of this earth, right? Because this earth says, like, power, wealth, materialism, comfort, and control is for you to have. And the citizens of the kingdom have to say, no. The way that we inherit the earth, meaning, meaning the good things that we get to experience in this world is by living a humble life. It's realizing, right, that it's God's agenda, his plan, his motives, his way of being. And it's not mine. It's not the world's. And when we're tempted in this fractured and broken world to to live on our own agenda, to follow our own plan. Jesus is saying, you want to be blessed. Not a superficial blessing, meaning, meaning not that I'm gonna give you more if you do more for me. A spiritual blessing, meaning, meaning that you will encompass all that who Jesus is in your life. Those are the people who are blessed and, and, and those who are blessed are the ones who say, not my will, but yours will be done. It's, it's to say, God, I'm willing to walk down the narrow path of righteousness so that you can be glorified even if it costs me something. Even, even if the sanctification and the purification cost me some nights of sleep. Right? That's, that's the person who is blessed. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. I love the word for satisfied. It's this idea of being stuffed, being completely full. Think about, think about your favorite restaurant. What's yours? I'll tell you mine's for future birthdays and Christmas cards. Um, I'm gonna tell you, so you guys remember. I'm gonna go slow so you guys can take notes. Um, it's Texas Roadhouse. I... If, how many of you love Texas Roadhouse? Amen. God bless Texas. I don't know who. I know Bob, Bob Evans is like a Midwestern. Is that an Ohio thing? Okay, um, Texas Roadhouse, man. Let me tell you something. I can go hard on some rolls. I, they bring the, okay, if you, who hasn't, oh gosh, I'm about to, who hasn't been to Texas Roadhouse? Oh, I'm so sorry. You, <laughs> You have, you have missed the other part of the Trinity. That's Chick-fil-A and there's, there's Chick-fil-A and there's Texas Roadhouse. I'm so sorry. You, so have you ever been to Texas Roadhouse? They cook up the, the bread, the rolls. You know, you know I'm talking about the rolls and then the cinnamon butter. All right, so when you walk in, I've been there often, so I'll tell you. I'm more than willing to give a tour um, for a short fee. Um, it's called a steak. Um, 
you walk into Texas Roadhouse, they're making it, and the Texas Roadhouse I go to, they have it on the right side, and they're cooking it up, and, and then this is what I always say, or whoever's, and if you go to Texas Roadhouse with me, you know, we don't do one basket, because the rolls are like this big, sometimes they're really big, oh, those are the good ones, and they're soft and gooey, and they give you this cinnamon butter, and you spread that bad boy in there, and you just go to town. Um, I'm, as I'm talking, I'm trying to process how to get back to the sermon, because this, the sermon's done. I just, the sermon's done. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> they give you these giant rolls, and <laughs> I wanna finish the story about the rolls. <laughs> they give you these rolls, and then you sit down at your table. They're really pleasant and nice. Um, for those of you who like Coke products, they just got Coke Zero. That is my favorite drink. I'm just telling you, I'm just, so that you know for future references, right? Like, so you walk in, they give you, and I am no, I just go hard on these rolls. Like, two baskets are not good. I ask them for two baskets, and then when we're done with the basket, you ask for two more. And I, I usually get a filet, medium, sweet potato on the side, and a Caesar salad. That's my thing. And then, wait, and then, do you want dessert? No, but I would like to take some rolls to go. <laughs> and this is what they do. They always give you rolls. That's why we love Texas Roadhouse. I just endorse them. So if they want to sponsor me, here at the chapel, we would love to put Texas Roadhouse behind me. Um, sorry, we won't do that. Um, but, but when I walk out of Texas Roadhouse, I am full. I, I don't want dessert because I know that I've eaten too many rolls. I, I got to the steak. I shouldn't have got the sweet potato because I, uh, uh, I get it with like the, what did they do, the marshmallows and the cinnamon. Okay, I get all that. And then I had the salad. So like I'm stuffed. So, so what? Now I'm going to bring the connection. I'm going to sanctify this. It's a long bridge, and it goes down, but it's all right. We're going to come back up, right? So, so what Jesus is saying, not about Texas Roadhouse, but what he's saying is that those who hunger for righteousness, they shall be satisfied, meaning you would be full. And what does he mean? What is he saying to the citizens of heaven? He's saying those who pursue righteousness, those who pursue good and right things are going to be satisfied by what? By who? Jesus. Why? Why is he going to do that? Because, because listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. He says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that what? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So what's the righteousness that he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus himself. Jesus, right, like imputes his righteousness onto us. That's what God the Father does through Jesus, right? So meaning that we stand in right relationship with God the Father. Why? Because he doesn't see our own filthy sin and righteousness. What he sees is his son's righteousness. So those people who pursue Jesus, those who pursue good and right things, holy and right things, will be satisfied with who? Jesus. With what? His righteousness. 
and what the world says. Listen, you know what you ought to pursue? You know what you ought to be hungry for? You ought to be hungry for your good works. You ought to be thirsty for your good deeds. A world that says that you are satisfied by yourself and we know as citizens of this kingdom that leaves you hungry because good works, good things cannot fill your soul. The only thing that can fill your soul is the presence of Jesus by the power of his spirit who indwells in you. That's when you will be satisfied. Not satisfied by the things of this world. If food and water are a necessity, look at me, if food and water are a necessity for life, to sustain life, then Jesus, for those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, need him to sustain our life in a fallen, fractured, broken world. So, so now that we know where character takes root, ultimately takes root in Jesus, but, but now does, how, how does character bear fruit? Meaning, meaning, how do we as citizens of this kingdom, as part of God's kingdom where he sits on a throne and he rules and reigns over us, how do we individually and corporately as a church flourish how, how, can we, how can we flourish specifically in a broken and fractured word? And this is what he says, right? Like, this is how character bears fruit. This is how you and I get to flourish in this world when nothing flourishes, where, where everything is dead. This is how we flourish. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And let me tell you something. This is really hard for me because when I think about this beatitude, we often, look at me, we often, especially in this world, are often comfortable with asking God for, for justice. We want God's rightful wrath to pour on other people because, because we live in a fractured world. People have offended us. People have hurt us. People have made us feel a certain way or think a certain way about ourselves or things that we've done. And, and what we often cry out, what we often desire is, God, we want you to punish them. But, but do you know what mercy is? Mercy, mercy is withholding, withholding, holding back the rightful punishment to someone else. That is what mercy is. It's to hold back the rightful punishment someone deserves. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So, so what is Jesus calling us to do? Jesus is calling us to look at the person who has offended us, the person who has hurt us, the person who has called much grief. And you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, you ought to forgive them. You ought to show them mercy. Why? Why do we show other people mercy? Why do we hold back the rightful punishment that they deserve? Why? Because we were the offender with God. We were the ones who offended him when we broke his law. We were the ones who fractured the relationship. And God's response wasn't, I hate you and I don't love you. God's response was, I'm going to die for you. 
to repair the relationship. So what does God do? He shows mercy. When was the last time you showed mercy to someone else? There are many people in this room and watching online that were easily, easily able to hold on grudges to other people because we look at ourselves as the victim. You are not a victim. Citizens of heaven are not victims. Citizens of heaven have the character of mercy and extend it to everyone else. They turn the cheek every single time. When was the last time you showed mercy to someone who's offended you? When was the last time you had mercy on someone who said something or did something that hurt you? Character bears fruit when we extend mercy to other people because we were the ones who offended God first. And also too, in a practical sense, we're going to offend other people. So if we want mercy when we offend people, we ought to extend mercy to other people. That is the difference from our world. Our world says what? Our world says, no, you know what? If someone's offended you, you are a victim. That is your identity. And what we're going to do is we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that person hurts and feels your pain. So we're going to cancel them out. We're going to make sure that everyone knows about what they did to you. We're going to go on social media to blast their name on social media. We're going to report them to this person and that person. We're going to tell everybody what they did because we want them to hurt. And Jesus is saying, no, show mercy. That is the true character of a citizen of heaven. I'm going to speed through this now. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. I think of Psalms 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Then the psalmist David says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. And what does the psalmist promise? That they will see God. What, what is Jesus promising here? Is that those who have the right motives, what is your motive? What stirs your affection? What, what wakes you up in the morning? What, what, what do you think about? What what actions do you, do you do on a daily basis that's motivated by what you feel and what you think? Jesus is saying that you all had a, a pure heart, meaning it should be godly and sanctified, meaning that your motives ultimately, what stirs your affection, should be stirred by the Spirit of God. Good, right, sanctified motives. And the promise is, is that you'll see him. And, and what Jesus is saying is that you're going to see him grow in you, meaning that you're going to be more like Jesus. Your motives are going to be more like Jesus. Your actions are going to be more like Jesus. You're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The more you sanctify your own heart, your thoughts, your feelings, your motives, what motivates you? Is it, is it money? Is it power? Is it your family? Is it your children? What motivates you? And if it's something other than Jesus, it's not the right motive. Our motives should be by Jesus and for Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is an active call, not a passive call, right? We think of peacekeepers, peacekeepers who maintain the status quo. Jesus is saying, no, is there strife? Is there division? There needs to be unity. The citizens of heaven pursue restoration. They pursue reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ, between family members. They are the ones, they are the agents of peace. Peace. 
When was the last time you made peace with someone or you made peace between two people? And he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the language, right? He starts off, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, there is the kingdom of heaven. This is a bookend to the Beatitudes, right? What is he saying here? He's saying, right, that that if we're, go- if we're going to be citizens of heaven, we should expect persecution. We may not die for it. But when he's telling his disciples, hey, this is who you're going to be, you should expect attacks from the world, right? Because if we're going to be poor in spirit, in need of God, if we're going to mourn over our sin, if, if we're going to be peacemakers in this world, what is the world going to do? How are they going to respond to us? And how they're going to respond is with attack. When you're part of the city, when you're part of the kingdom of heaven, you should expect the blowback, the pushback against your faith. Does it happen all the time? No. Will it happen all the time? I don't know. But the true citizens of God's kingdom are the ones who expect difficult and hard times when they stand up for their faith. When was the last time you stood up for your faith? When was the last time you told somebody about Jesus in a good, loving, kind, but convicting way? Do people even know that you're a citizen of this kingdom or they just assume you're just a nice person the citizens of this kingdom declare the message of this gospel in Matthew which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand you want to know what it looks like to be a citizen of this kingdom Read the Beatitudes. Remember, this is not a laundry list of of things to do to be part of the kingdom. This This is a list of things that we are, that God is already doing in us, that God already accomplished in his son Jesus. So let's walk as citizens of this kingdom in this broken and fractured world. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, gracious, and kind. And God, as we evaluate this broken world, as we, as we look at how sin has destroyed our world, we are encouraged, we are inspired, knowing that, that your kingdom will come. We will see a reality to the end of, of sin and death and that we, God, would participate in your kingdom once and for all in eternity. But God, as we wait for your return, we ask you, O oh Lord, that you would, you would stir in us, every man, every woman in this room, to be like your son Jesus, to be true citizens of the kingdom of heaven now. We pray this in Christ's name and the people of God say. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.